haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate. Y'all know that phrase? Uh, I, I think I've done a little bit of research on it. Uh, nobody's quite sure when it entered the, our, our cultural lexicon. It seemed to hit real peak popularity in about 2011, and it doesn't seem to be abating. Haters gonna hate. According to the most popular definition on Urban Dictionary, you all know that website? Uh, one of the most popular, de- the most popular definition of that phrase um, states that the phrase conveys a person's complete and total disregard of another person's negative comment. It might go like this. You know, I'm walking down the street and somebody says, dude, those are ugly shoes. And I just respond, haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. Dismissed utterly. The criticism, I am saying, by that phrase, isn't grounded in reality. They're not really ugly shoes. No, it's just personal animus. He's just a hater. And so I can, I can dismiss him summarily. Haters going to hate. Now, of course, so often that rejoinder is, is really a way of having to avoid, or it's a way of avoiding having to deal with valid criticism. I mean, maybe the shoes really are ugly. Oh, I don't want to deal with it. Haters going to hate. It's, it's a, for those of you that are, that are into logic and debate, it's, it's essentially an ad hominem argument, an attack against the person. And it completely fails every standard of rational debate. And yet the phrase is really popular. The phrase persists. And I think it carries such rhetorical force in our culture, especially if you're 30 and younger, because our our experience tells us it's true. Haters hate. Not not because they have a good reason to hate, but there's just lots of people out there that that they they hate because they want to. They're just negative people. Now, lately... If you've noticed, Christians have been on the receiving end of this phrase. In response, for example, to our opposition to redefining marriage and family, the rejoinder has come back to Christians who offer their biblical arguments in, in, in defense of marriage and family as God created it. The response comes back, you guys are just haters, and haters gonna hate. The irony of that criticism being directed at us as Christians is enormous, right? Christianity has always presented itself as the religion of love. We we are the champions of love. From the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, to to the the story of the Good Samaritan that, that everybody seems to know to John's famous phrase defining God in in the letter that we've been studying, you know, God is love. We've always understood ourselves to be the lovers, not the haters. But increasingly, the world around us disagrees. Of course, the irony goes even deeper. Because while haters gonna hate is an ad hominem argument, 
and is utterly invalid in one sense, it is also what Christianity teaches to be true. Haters hate because of who they are inside. And lovers love because of who they are inside. This spring, we're considering authentic Christianity using John's first letter, a letter that, if you've noticed, talks a lot about love and hate. And what John confronts us with this morning is that the question for debate isn't who are the haters and who are the lovers in this world. No, the real question, the question that really we have to ask first before we can ever get to the question of who are the haters and who are the lovers, the real question that we have to ask is what is authentic love? And related to that, what is hate really all about? Only when we answer those questions can we then have any hope of figuring out who the haters are and who the lovers are. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, that's found on page 1901. 1901. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 11 to 18. 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. All right, John reintroduced this idea of love for our brothers at the end of verse 10, which we looked at last week. And in our verses today, He he picks that up, and he's returning now for the second time to the second mark, the second test of of, of true Christianity, uh, of what makes somebody a genuine Christian. And that's the test, the social test of love. The the genuine Christian loves his brother. Now, now when John dealt with this theme the first time back in chapter 2, he argued that love and particularly love for our brothers, was characteristic of the new age that had dawned in Christ. This time, he he roots his argument a little bit differently. He roots it in our identity as children of God. Since we've entered into this new age, we, we are those who have been born again. We are those who are children of God. And, and therefore, the principle is, is really straightforward. If I could sum up this passage you know, in a single sentence, it'd be something like this. If you've been born of God, you will love like God loves. If you've been born of God, if you've been born again, 
you will love like God loves. John makes this case, though, in two steps. There's first kind of a negative step and then a positive step. So if you're taking notes, it's a really simple outline. First, don't, here's the negative, don't be a hater. Verses 11 to 15. He he says it as an imperative, right? He's giving instruction. Don't be a hater. And then second, uh, verses 16 to 18, be a lover. Right? There it is. Real, real simple argument. Don't be a hater. Be a lover. Now, as we think about haters and lovers, I want you to consider your own life this morning as John unpacks this. And what does your life reveal about you? All right, first then, since you're a Christian, John's speaking to Christians here. If you're a Christian, don't be a hater like Cain. Don't be a hater like Cain. And then he gives a reason, because haters don't have eternal life. Don't be a hater like Cain, because haters don't have eternal life. Look at verse 11 again. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Verse 11 there actually begins with the word because. The NIV doesn't put it in there. But, but uh, John's writing in Greek. He's not writing in English. And, and the word because actually begins the sentence there in, in, in verse 11. John's just said in verse 10 that a child of God will do two things. He'll do what is right, and he'll love his brother. And now he gives the reason. Because, and to begin with, he says, because it's, this is the message we have heard from the beginning of our Christian lives. He made this point back in chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. But now he goes on to point out that since it is that message of love that gave us the new birth, we should live consistent then to our our new parentage, this this divine birth that we've been given. It's really a further application of the principle that we saw last week, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. And to drive it home, he uses the negative example of Cain as an illustration. What does he say about Cain? Well, he says that Cain belonged to, literally was from the evil one, the devil. John doesn't mean that Cain wasn't really Adam and Eve's biological son. He's talking spiritually here. That, that, That spiritually, Cain was of the devil. He was of the line, the seed of the serpent that God laid out, that that great division of humanity that God lays out in Genesis 3.15, that there will be two lines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And and John makes very clear here that Cain was of that that line that was the seed of the serpent. his, His life was characterized by the nature of his spiritual father, the devil. And the proof of it, according to John there, is 
that he murdered his brother. That's kind of all you need to know. And then John says, quite straightforwardly to us, don't be like Cain. And I don't know about you, but immediately I say, okay, I won't murder anyone today. Actually, I wasn't even planning on it. And when you have that reaction, and I don't know if you had that reaction reading it this week, I sure did. It was like, this, this is an easy one, John. This is pretty straightforward. Don't, don't kill someone today. Okay. When, when, when you think about it that way, you realize um, maybe this illustration doesn't work so well, right? After all, you don't have to be a Christian to keep from murdering someone today. I, I'm, I'm just now, you know, I'm going to venture out on faith here, but, but I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of non-Christians in America today are not going to commit murder. I, I, think, I think that's a pretty safe assumption, right? The overwhelming majority of non-Christians are not going to kill someone today or tomorrow or the day after that or next week or next month or next year or, in fact, even once in their whole lives. So um, what's going on with the illustration, right? It seems like John is either setting the bar way too low or he's got a way inflated and unrealistic view of Christians. Well, in fact, John is not talking about the bare act of murder. John knows that, that most human beings are not going to actually go out and, and kill someone, take, take someone's life. No, he's pointing to the heart that gives rise to murder. A heart that all of us have. Now, now, you know the story that he's referring to here, I hope. Genesis 4 tells us that both brothers, Cain and Abel, the, the two first sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to God. Cain offered some of the fruits of the earth. Cain was a, was a gardener like his dad. Abel was a shepherd. And so he offered the firstborn of his flock. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. And as the story plays out, what happens is Cain murders Abel in cold blood. Now John asks and answers the question uh, right here in, in verse 12, why did Cain murder his brother? And the answer is that Cain was convicted that his own actions toward God with respect to the sacrifice were evil. And Abel's actions toward God with respect to the sacrifice were righteous. And Cain could not stand the comparison. He couldn't tolerate the way in which Abel was, was showing him up as unrighteous. How, how Abel's actions, Abel's life exposed Cain to be the, the rebel against God that he really was. And so Cain despised the instrument of his conviction. He felt guilty and he didn't want to feel guilty. Who does? He felt condemned and he didn't want to feel condemned. Who does? Abel was like a, a, a mirror that Cain had to look into every single day. 
And Cain didn't like what he saw. And so Cain decided to get rid of the mirror. John says that this, in fact, is why the world in general, the unbelieving, non-Christian world in general, hates Christians in general. Not because we're bigots, not not because we're racists, not because we Christians are, are particularly vile and immoral people, but simply because our lives of submission to God, our lives of submission to His Word, shows the world up for what they really are. And and what are they? Well, not necessarily vile and immoral people, but rebels. Rebels against God and therefore not as good as they thought they were. And more accountable than they want to be. It's not that Christians are better than other people. We can all point to non-Christians who on the, on the face of things, just the way they live their life, are very moral people and, and, and in many ways you know, make us look not so good. No, it's, it's not that, that Christians are always better than everybody else and so provoke a jealous hatred. The world looks at us and thinks, oh, I, I wish I could be like you, and I can't, so I hate you. No, 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 no. It's that Christians, by our submission to God, by our humble recognition of our need for grace, oh, in that we we reveal that the world is worse than they thought they were. And so it provokes a kind of guilty hatred. John's teaching us something important about hatred here. If hatred, as we've seen before, because John's talked about hatred before, if hatred is fundamentally the act of rejection, And it's why, of course, Jesus will be able to equate hatred to murder in in Matthew chapter 5, because it's fundamentally a rejection of somebody else. If, if, If hatred is fundamentally rejection, then the problem with hatred isn't hatred itself. The problem with hatred is, is whether the object of hatred is worthy of it. Is the object that is hated worthy of being rejected? You know, there are some things in this world, in this life, that should be hated. Because God hates them. Right? Racism should be hated. Slavery should be hated. Bigotry. Homophobia should be hated. Just to name a few. But there is such a thing, and therefore, and what that shows us is there is such a thing as righteous hatred. That's not what John's talking about here. Because see, oftentimes what's hated is righteousness. What's hated is justice. What's hated is grace and those who practice them. And when those who practice righteousness and justice and grace are hated, well, then we know that that hatred has a very different origin. It's not a righteous hatred. John says in verses 14 and 15 that hatred and love of our brothers is is actually incompatible. So much so that the presence of love for our brothers, John says, is proof that we have passed from death 
to life, that that we've been born again, that we have the, the new life of heaven operating in us. On the other hand, John John points out there, uh, particularly there in verse 15, hating our brother reveals that we are murderers just like Satan himself. And he says, no murderer has eternal life. Jesus, I I mentioned before in in, in Matthew chapter 5, talks about this. Everybody knew that, that to murder somebody was to stand under God's condemnation. Jesus comes along and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just looking at the fruit. Let's talk about the root. Let's talk about the hatred in the heart that gives rise in some people, finally, to the ultimate fruit of murder. And Jesus points out that if the fruit is worthy of condemnation, then the root is just as worthy of the same condemnation. Now, in our verse, John uses the very same unusual word that Jesus uses in John chapter 8, verse 44, to describe the devil. In, in John 8, 44, Jesus says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. It's not actually the normal word for murder, that the, or murderer, that the rest of the New Testament uses uh, more frequently. And the only other time that that particular word shows up in the entire New Testament is right here in our verse. John is going back and picking up that word that Jesus used to describe the evil one, Satan himself, as a murderer. And he says, that is what we are if we hate our brothers. To hate those who are righteous, to reject them, to want to get rid of them, simply reveals whose child you really are. There is a lot to unpack here. And and to begin with, I I should just say, John John is not saying that a literal murderer cannot be saved, that that, that murder is actually the unforgivable unforgivable sin. We know that on the pages of Scripture itself, right? Witness the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul began his public career assisting in the public lynching of Stephen. And yet, God radically... Uh, intervened in Paul's life and, and saved him. So literal murderers are not outside the possibility of salvation. That's not what he's saying. Second, John isn't referring to a single act of hatred. Rather, as he does throughout this letter, he uses verb tenses, particular Greek verb tenses, to make it very clear he's talking about someone whose life is characterized by hatred. Not, not, not a bad day, not, not, not a bad moment, not, not even a personality conflict you're having with somebody, but, but no, a, a, a life that is characterized day in, day out, week in, week out by hatred, by rejection of your brother. And, and really what he's doing here is he's, he's confronting us with the reason for such hatred. He, he's, he's making it clear to us. It's not them. It's us and our own guilty conscience. We hate because we don't want to deal with what we see in the mirror. Third, John is talking to the church. I mean, he, he mentions there that, of course, this is, this is why the world hates us, but he's, he's not really particularly concerned with the world's hatred in this section. 
He's actually talking to people who understand themselves, who profess themselves to be Christians. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are there ways, even as church members, as church attenders, where we are tempted to hate one another because we don't like what we see about ourselves in the mirror of each other's lives? Friend, are you guilty of writing other people off, of of rejecting them because they're goody-two-shoes? Are you quick to accuse other Christians of being legalists or or being super spiritual when, in fact, what's really going on inside is you're aware of the fact that they're more godly than you are and you don't like that. It bothers you. Have you grown content with a kind of shallow, pygmy, stunted spiritual life? And so have become derisive of those who take their Christianity way too seriously. Could it be that you want to have your your salvation? You know, you checked the box, you prayed the prayer, you made the decision, you want to have your salvation and your pygmy-stunted spirituality, too. You know, John calls us, if we are Christians, not to hate our brother in the way that Cain hated Abel. In other words, do not hate our brother who is more mature spiritually than we are, whose actions are righteous and who show our own actions up to be not so righteous. But instead, we're called to love that brother, That is, in part, what the church is for, right? We are here to be mirrors for each other, to be able to stare at each other's lives and to learn something about our own lives in that that reflection so that we could spur one another on in love and in obedience. So, So what would it look like for you, Christian, what would it look like for you this week to love your brother who is, who is more mature than you are, who is ahead of you in, in the race, in the journey? Would it look like being humble? Would it look like actively trying to cultivate in your own life a, a teachable attitude so that you could learn from others around you? Would would it look like desiring to be discipled by a Christian in this congregation who is more mature than you are, who's been following Christ longer than you are, and maybe even taking some steps to reach out to that person and to invite them into your life? Would, would Would it look like growing in your ability to accept correction, to accept even rebuke? from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Would it look like cultivating in yourself a kind of holy aspiration to imitate some more mature brother or sister even as they are seeking to imitate Christ? Friend, no one is condemned by God for being immature in the faith. 
No, condemnation is reserved for the hater, right? For the, for, for the person who recognizes that they're immature in the faith and rejects those that would call them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because see, haters reject the light. And they reject the light because they don't want to be exposed in their own disobedience. John says that such a professing Christian actually has remained in death and is no Christian at all. To be unable to love your brother who's ahead of you, to to be incorrigible, unteachable, uninstructable, is to show that you remain in death. Now, if you're not a Christian, if, you know, if you're here this morning and you know you're not a Christian, John's not actually talking directly to you. He just has that one line there about don't be surprised if the world hates you. So, so I, I would simply ask you to consider your own rejection of the Christian faith. Is there something visceral about it? Is there something deep in your gut that just causes you to not like, to to, to hate this message, to to hate Christianity, maybe even to hate particular Christians? Could I get you to just examine that honestly for a little bit? Because after all, why should my faith in Jesus affect you emotionally and viscerally as maybe it does? Could it be that that my refusal to justify myself to God, but to instead to depend upon His grace, bothers you so much because it it calls into question your commitment to justify yourself to God? Don't be a hater. Don't be a hater like Cain. Because haters do not have eternal life. They remain in death. Instead, if you are a Christian, be a lover. Be a lover like Jesus. This is the second point. Be a lover like Jesus. Because love brings life. Love brings life. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If Cain shows us what it means to be a hater, Jesus Christ shows us what it means to be a lover. Now, people have lots of ideas about love these days and what love is. It's Love is acceptance, right? I grew up in the, in the 70s where there were those little precious moments figurines and love meant never having to say you're sorry. Some of you all remember that, right? Uh, love means tolerance. Love means sentimental affection. Love means chemistry. Something really connects between two people. Friends, none of those, none of those ideas, none of those defini- definitions even come close to the truth. True love 
is what Jesus did. True love is what Jesus displayed when he laid down his life for us on the cross. Friends, this is the heart and soul of the gospel, of the good news of Christianity. The the message of Christianity is a message about radical love. If hate rejects love, the love of Christ chooses. If hate seeks to do harm toward another, love, the love of Christ, chooses to do good for another. If hate acts against another, even to the point, finally, of taking that other person's life away, love, the love of Christ, chooses to do good for another, to act on behalf of another, even to the point of laying his own life down. For you, for me. What makes the contrast here between Christ and Cain so stark is that Cain hated righteousness. And so his hate was evil. But Jesus, Jesus loved sinners, which makes his love divine. You know, we all know what it means to, to love someone else, to, to act for their good, to, to give up ourselves for them. I think every spouse here, every, every parent, every child, every, every close friend has had a taste of this. But what sets Christ's love apart from our love for, for those that we love, what sets his love apart is that while we love those who love us, Christ loved us while we were still his enemies. He loved us while we were hating him. As Paul declared in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we heard Jesus himself say earlier when, when Ron read from John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you, do you hear the, the radical thing that happened right there. Jesus called sinners friends. The holy and righteous God, the second person of the Trinity, decided to lay down his life for sinners. He didn't lay down his life for good people. He didn't lay down his life for righteous people. He laid down his life for people like you and me. I'm sorry if that was a surprise to you that you're not a good and righteous person, but I'm just, I'm kind of taking it on the fact that I know myself pretty well, and you got to be at least as bad as me. That's who Jesus died for, and he called us friends. That's divine love. This is the radical love of Jesus Christ, and the result of that love, the result, the, the most important result of that love is not that it makes us feel loved. Though it does. But that's actually not the most important thing. No, the the most important result of Jesus' love for sinners is that it makes us alive. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, when he accepted death, he didn't do it because he deserved it. No, he did it because he was paying the penalty of death that we owed for our rebellion against God. And then when he took up his life again, when he was resurrected from the grave three days later, he didn't just get up from the dead for his own sake. No, he secured resurrection. 
He secured life for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's sacrificial love brings life to dead people. To dead people like you and to dead people like me. Because that is who we are. We, we, we remain in death outside of Christ. We are spiritually dead. We are under God's curse. We are under God's condemnation. I, I, I know the, the body's alive. I get that. But spiritually, we are as good as dead. And this is what Jesus Christ's death and resurrection does for us. When we put our faith in it, we become alive. Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I ask you to consider what might be going on in your own heart, but I really also want you to consider that this is what we're inviting you to. When we we call you, when we ask you, when we plead with you, when we encourage you to, to come to Christ, to become a Christian, this is what we're talking about. We're inviting you to life. We're calling you to stop hating Christ. Stop rejecting him. It's it's true. His life does reveal the utter inadequacy of your life. Yes, it does that. But it does that not in order to condemn you. But if you'll humbly accept the truth to bring you life. You don't need to fear his condemnation. Instead, I invite you right now, just sitting right where you are, Humbly accept him. Humbly accept who you are and your need for him. Accept his love for you. And pass from death to life today, right now. I would love to talk to you, talk to you about this more. You, you may have more questions. You, you may have more objections. I've got all the time in the world for that. I'll be standing at the door afterwards. Um, so, so come talk to me. Talk talk to the person you came with. Talk talk to the Christian that you know about what it would look like to accept this love and to move from death to life. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've already made that move from death to life, well, well, that's actually who John primarily is talking to in this passage. And what John says to us is, all right then, Live out that love for one another. You, you, you see what he says there. And, and, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 16. You see, Jesus' love is not only saving, it's exemplary for the Christian. Like Jesus, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But it's even more than an example, though it is that. It's, it's, it's actually a love that is present in us. Jesus' sacrificial love is present in us, empowering us. If it's not, then John says, we can have no confidence that the love of God is in us because because this is what true love does. This is what divine love does. Divine love doesn't stay bottled up like a genie in a bottle and only come out every now and then when we rub the bottle and ask for something. No, no, divine love is constantly coming out of the bottle, right? It's constantly wanting to act out. It's constantly wanting to express itself. It is the very nature of the love of God. It's why he created the world in the first place. He didn't need to create the world. He wasn't lonely. He he, he didn't even need an object to love 
Because God is Trinity. And so God has been forever in relationship, the three persons of the Godhead, in a perfect relationship of love from, from all eternity past. So he didn't even need an object to love. No, it's just, this is what love does. This is what God's love does. It overflows. And in its abundance, it creates. God's love is like a fountain. Fountains don't stay bottled up. Right? They got to come out. And so if God's love is in you, it will do the same thing. It's got to out. It's got to come out and express itself. It's its very nature. As John says there in verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, the world says, if you love me, you'll accept me as I am. God says, divine love says, because I love you, not only do I accept you as you are, but I'm going to give myself away for you so that you don't remain as you are, but become all that I intended you to be. Brothers and sisters, this is where our love for one another comes in. Our love for each other doesn't save anyone, but our love for one another is used by God to accomplish his transforming purposes, his life-giving purposes in us. John gives us an example here in, in, uh, in, in verse 17. The love of God, John says, compels us to take from our own material abundance and, and, and give it away sacrificially to make up for the material need of our brother. That is literally a a costly, a sacrificial love that brings life. Not not spiritual life. Giving somebody money doesn't make them alive spiritually. But it does bring a kind of physical life, right? It, it, It brings prosperity to someone who is in need. The pattern shows us that, that the love of God is in us. And I think that is what's going on here. John is using this as as an example, not as the only way we love sacrificially, but as one example of of, of a larger principle, a larger pattern. That, That whatever we find ourselves abundant in, well, God has given it to us that we might lay it down, that, that we might give it away to meet the needs, the poverty of our brothers and sisters. Because, because that's what God did, right? What was God abundant in? God was abundant in grace. And so he came and laid down his life that we who were sorely lacking in grace might be made rich through his poverty. So practically, what does that look like in your life this week, Christian? How, how are you demonstrating that this, this, this overflowing, giving itself away love is really present in you? Well, it might be just like the example that John gives us. It, it might be materially. You know, we, we as a congregation have an opportunity every month, we encourage you to come on the first Sunday of the month for the Lord's Supper, but to come knowing in advance, we're going to take up a benevolence offering. There's a great way to take of your material riches and give to the benevolence offering, and then that money is used, it's distributed across the congregation to help brothers and sisters who are in material need. But you know what? You don't have to do it through the benevolence offering. I mean, I know if you do it through the benevolence offering and you write a check, you know, we'll include it in your year-end tax giving so you can, you can write it off against your taxes. But 
Honestly, who cares? You can actually help people directly. If you know of a need in this congregation, you can just come right alongside and give directly. But you know, maybe it's not material. Maybe, actually, that's not something you're abundant in. But maybe you are abundant in relationships. There are a bunch of you here that have been here a long time, and you are part of large extended networks of family and friends. You are rich in relationships. Brothers and sisters, are you on the lookout for people in this church who are on the margins, who are not part of those, you know, 50-year extended family friend networks that this church is characterized by? And are you looking for opportunities to pull those people on the margins in, to make them a part of the richness that God has given you? Let me particularly point out that there are many in our congregation who are single, who are widowed, widowers, who are divorced and not remarried. These are people who, in a church like ours, with, with big families and big extended networks, can feel very much on the margins. You who are rich in relationships, could you make yourself a little poorer this week? Could you lay down the, the, the wonderful intimacy and privacy that you experience in that network of relationships? Could you lay that down and pull some people on the margins in? I guarantee you, you won't feel poorer for doing it. Maybe it's, it's not money. Maybe it's not relationships. Maybe, maybe you're rich spiritually. Maybe you are a very mature believer in Jesus Christ. You, you, you know the word. You've been following Jesus for a long time. Friend, are you willing to give up your time and your energy to teach a Sunday school class or to disciple a younger believer? Maybe it's, it's none of those things. Maybe what you're rich in, maybe you're rich emotionally. Maybe you're one of those people that's just super stable. You feel really loved. Don't doubt that you're loved. You, you've, you've got a pretty secure identity in Christ. Friend, are you willing to lay aside personal comfort that comes from that emotional richness and stability, and to enter into someone else's grief, someone else's depression, someone else's anxiety, in order to meet their need. In any and all of these ways, brothers and sisters, are we willing to be inconvenienced for others. Talked about us, you know, taking what we're rich in and, uh, and, and giving it away, but the reality is, as modern Americans, the one thing that we all feel poor in is time. Everybody feels too busy. Everybody feels too pressed. Everybody feels too rushed and too stressed. In the poverty of your time, are you willing to be inconvenienced to meet the needs of another? Friend, this is divine love. 
Are we willing to interrupt our routines? Are we willing to give up our privacy? Are we willing to spend our riches to bring life to a brother or sister's poverty? I've seen this here. I've seen this in action. I'm in a particularly good spot to see it uh, as, as, the, as the lead pastor. I, I probably hear about more things. I don't hear about everything. But I am really encouraged by what I see. I'm encouraged over, the, over this last year by a small group of elders who have given up countless hours. And it's been very inconvenient to try to rescue one of our elderly shut-in members from being scammed by a telephone scammer. And it's not been fun, and it's not been easy, and it's been costly, but I've watched them do it. I regularly see mothers of young children who are very busy with their own children taking time to to cook and clean and to care for the children of other families who are in difficult straits. I've watched as an employer takes a risk and hires a fellow member here in the church who needed better employment. I've watched retirees give up their free time, because that's the one thing, right, a retiree is rich in. Maybe he saved well for retirement, maybe he didn't, but what he's got, like it or not, is time. I've watched retirees give up their time to mentor and encourage young people who cannot figure out how to launch into life. I've seen this. I hope you see it. I want to see it more. I hope you want to see it more. Because, friends, anybody can love like this for a short time. Anyone can love like this when it's for their own family, their own circle of friends. But when we love like this in the church for the long haul, when we love like this for brothers and sisters who cannot pay us back, who aren't related to us, who aren't even like us, who wouldn't have been one of those people that we chose to be our friends were we able to make all those choices but who have become our family through Jesus Christ in the local church. When we do that, we show the world that the love of God is truly present here. And it is flowing like a fountain, and it cannot be contained. Haters going to hate. They're going to hate anything and anyone that calls into question their own self-righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that lovers are going to love. Christian, the love of God has brought us from death to life. And that love is in us, and we cannot help but let it overflow. Indeed, as Paul says, Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And was raised again. Are you a hater or a lover? What do you see when you look in the mirror of your brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, we ask, we ask that your love would transform us, that indeed we would not 
be haters, that we would humbly accept your verdict against us, that we would just as humbly accept your love for us in Jesus Christ, and that that love would display itself powerfully in this church, corporately, in our lives, individually, that that though the world hate us, they do not hate us for any good reason. Lord, we pray that this would be the truth of this congregation. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.